What's up, everybody? I'm Billy Ryan, and you are listening to the No One Is Watching podcast, where we explore leadership, culture, and the impact they have on high-performing teams. We can all admire the championships that are won on the field and the big profits that show up on the balance sheet. But this show is dedicated to the premise that those battles are won long before they start. Through conversations with elite performers and leaders in the world of business, sports, and life in general, we'll learn valuable lessons on how you can optimize yourself and your organization. On this episode, we're joined by Ryan Maid. Ryan is a former college athlete and a veteran, serving as the command psychologist for Naval Special Warfare Training Command and as the officer in charge of the Operational Stress Control and Readiness Program for the 6th Marine Regiment. After retiring from the military, Ryan entered the world of professional sports, where he currently works for his second MLB team, focusing on the mental and behavioral challenges that professional athletes face. Ryan's expertise offers a unique perspective on elite performance as we discuss leadership, culture, and among other things, performance under pressure. All right, we'll just dive right into it. What am I thinking right now? What are you thinking right now? Is that is that not what you do? I, was I missing? Well, was I let me let about... me pull out. Where's my where's my crystal ball? I I, <laughs> I am a mind reader. I do voodoo. So let, let's try, right. let's try to go into that. You know, uh, you're thinking about pink uh, unicorns and rainbows as they're crossing the Atlantic Ocean, gearing up for war with uh, somebody. How about that? Uh, was... Is that good? A little, a little too close to home, but um, yeah, that was, that was pretty good. Um, well, look, man, I, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, you know, this is going to be fun. Looking forward to catching up a little bit. Uh, I'm going to try to give a, like a 30 second rundown on your background and, and, and correct me if I get anything uh, out of sequence or wrong, but you were a college athlete um, coming from, coming from Missouri, um, growing up in that area or a college athlete of multiple sports, I believe. Uh, joined the military after your after your college time, wound up um, uh, linking up with Naval Special Warfare, being involved in their selection and assessment process, embedded with that group. Uh, when you eventually exited the the military, you uh, joined uh, the sports world and are, are are now working for your second major league team. Uh, in in how many years has it been for you now at MLB? Yeah, I've been working full time seven years in baseball at this point. So okay. it's been, um, it's almost like my second career. I'm kind of at the seven, the sevens mark. It's like, uh, uh seven years in the military, seven years in baseball. So it's a pivotal point now, I guess I got to make it, I got to make a decision. Right. 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 <laughs> Pivot time. Uh, it's, it's, do I, do I know what I want to do when I grow up? No, no, it's been, it's been seven great years in baseball. So I'm not, no desire to get out at this point. I'm really enjoying working with players and athletes and, and in the field. So, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much a rundown. I spent two years embedded with the Marine regiment prior to my time with Naval, Naval special warfare, but, uh, it's been a great career. 14 years. When you think about it, it's a long time, 14 years of practicing, um, in psychology and working with high performers is seems like eternity at this point coming up on two, two decades, which is pretty wild think about it's also wild to think about but if i would have stayed in the military i'd be close to retiring so let's not let's not think about that part <laughs> <laughs> so what what is the i mean that's like that's the common thread we've talked about this a bunch right the the ties between military and sports and i think those two populations generally speaking have a 
have an appreciation and for respect for what the other does. Uh, and, um, I'm curious early in your baseball career, the parallels that you were able to draw from those two groups, uh, as you were transitioning out of the military and into sports, what, what, if anything stood out to you? It's interesting, right? you know, because I, when I first got into baseball, I probably thought there were more parallels and differences. And I think I've waxed and waned over the years on, on what my beliefs are on how much, how many similarities are, are really there. Um, and I, and I think that again, it ebbs and flows, waxes and wanes, but, um, initially, you know, going through my own just adjustment period, getting out of, of the uniform and, and active duty, um, you know, my hope was, is that everybody was there for kind of the same purpose, same reason. Um, and that would be one of the similarities in, in sport and, and in the military. But I, I think that varies for a lot of different folks, but, and maybe that's somewhat different with, with the military too. I think the constraints of the environment in the military probably put a person in place to where on some level they're forced to personnel are kind of, you know, they want to, they want to be there for a reason. They, they're wearing a uniform. Um, we're in professional sport. It's guys are, are definitely there for, you know, sometimes I think it's performing. Sometimes I think it's winning. Sometimes I think it's making money. And those things are really relatively different from, from the military. But overall, I would say the populations that I've worked with on, on the elite performer side of the house, like um, there are some similarities in terms of the human stress response and how people respond to threats. And so the threats are just defined way differently with baseball players and active duty service members or football players or basketball players. I mean, uh, there are life and death threats um, in the uniform where, where in baseball players, it's um, a 99 mile hour fastball uh, coming across fifth and Broadway, kind of hit it out of the park. However, the, the human body's response through my experiences and and research and, and studying is, is very similar just in terms of increased heart rate, and, uh, memory, uh, memory being impacted to racing thoughts, to uh, the human stress response and understanding kind of how the mind and body operate. And so and as a result, performance is altered, just like our, our memory is not great for guys that have been uh, kind of overseas doing work. And uh, we, get shaky, we uh, get numbness in the, in the fingers, like you hear that a lot with pitchers when they're first called up and understanding kind of like what that feels like when you've got 20,000 fans and watching you and uh, you're not commanding pitches or you make a mistake. Now on, the, on the military side of that, is that is that a stress response or is that a, a survival tactic of, I can't worry about this trauma that happened a month ago, I've got to move on? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting question. Um, I would say the stress response is, is in the moment is that you, you see some interesting things that happen in the moment when we put guys under pressure, um, such as, again, increased heart rate or uh, increased sweat response. You're activating that fight, flight, freeze response that you hear about, read about often. And those two systems are activated with, with performers, with athletes and then with military personnel. Um, traumas a little bit differently. Uh, trauma is defined, I think, a little bit differently, but I would say that sometimes baseball players, you know, we have these things that we call subclinical traumas, um, if you will, uh, where basically life, loss of life was not um, 
impacted or threat of loss of life or a dangerous situation. Um, but in a baseball player's mind, if they give up a home run in the seventh inning, runners in scoring position, tie ball game, coming straight out of the pin, uh, you, you have a very interesting response. Some guys have a very interesting response. Not all guys. I think just like in the military, all guys who face um, intense firefights or combat, they don't all experience the same same symptoms, um, if you will, or the same response. But there is there are some similarities there in terms of what the human body does. Oftentimes with baseball players, sometimes that's the, the most dangerous thing they face in their career at that point. And they've got a lot riding on it because they've worked their entire career to get to, to where they are. Um, whether that be their 10 years in their 20s, and you know, some of these guys don't get called up 28, 29 years old. They've spent 10 years perfecting their craft and, and then get face a buzzsaw um, or they're, they're learning to kind of cope under those environments. Yeah. It's interesting. The, the trying to strike that balance between um, competitive, aggressive alpha uh, may not be life and death, but you have to uh, treat it as it may be uh, in the sporting world. Right. Cause you want to, you want to be victorious versus um, having that perspective of, whether it's within the arena of sport or just in the arena of life where you know, it's not life or death. Right. And so, you know, you and I were fortunate enough and we had some fun doing some work um, a few years back, trying to expose some young players to non-baseball specific experiences and to try to help them grow uh, to, to accomplish really that, right. To allow that to, to give them some perspective um, outside the game that may help them, you know, between the lines. And so I'm curious about really in, in your, in your mind, is there a sweet spot of, uh, I am invincible GI Joe, Johnny all-star and no one can touch me. Uh, or is it, Hey, I'm lucky to be here. Every day is a blessing. These guys are talented too. I gotta go out there and compete. You know what I mean? Is, is there a, a spot where you, you find players and I know it's an individual question, but generally speaking, um, you know, have, have you, have you stumbled across that from your perspective? I think it's just a matter of understanding that your worth is not tied to whatever career field you're, you're choosing. And so we, we used to see this a lot with medical students as well as they would be a the valedictorian in their class from a small town and then they get to med school and then they're surrounded with hundred valedictorians or 30 valedictorians and they recognize that wow i went from being a big fish in a small pond to being a small fish in a big pond um, from their view but um, at the end of the day it's how we view those things it's how we view those threats and are we going to thrive in those moments or are we going to take a hold of those moments are we going to just let things be uh, you know Things are neither good nor bad, but thinking makes them so, you know, that that approach and understanding that we uh, how we view things are really, really important, that everything in this world is neutral. We just apply meaning to it. And that meaning is, is what is really impactful. And it's understanding that with with guys and across the performance continuum, I think that's really important for people to understand is, is that it's really just how I view this and how is it impacting my life and is my worth tied to this? Yeah, I've invested a lot of time in my career, uh, whether, whether I'm a professional athlete, a psychologist, or uh, active duty service member. Um, it doesn't matter, but is my worth tied to this? And I think we can cross those lines at times because we spend so much time there. And 
And it's understanding like what our mind and body does under those pressures. And when we, when we were putting some guys and some interesting, uh, some baseball players and exposing them to similar types of stress responses, because we wanted them to understand what that feels like in a different environment, meaning that we can, we can fabricate and make those, uh, make that stress response happen. It doesn't have to be in baseball. We can throw you in a public speaking environment in front of 15 people. And we know that we're going to get a similar response. Why is that? It's because public speaking is the, one of the most uh, fearful things people have and or experience. And, and so we just want you to be able to experience those symptoms in your non, um, your non uh, primary sport or profession because we can talk we can be more objective about it when we're more objective about it we can we can alter some of our perception of, of those threats and, and i think that's really important is, is basically that we can we can show people that yeah we can make these things happen and we can uh talk about our that metacognition piece which is thinking about thinking and, and understanding how that either helps us thrive or helps us flail uh in the in the sake of adversity or in the face of adversity i'm sorry yeah, so you, you talked about stress inoculation, right? And we we touched on that in that that program you and I are involved in. There, there's plenty of ways to do that physically, right? I mean, there there are there are ways to just tire someone out so then they're stressed or then they're not as sharp cognitively. Um, there are there are plenty of ways to put them into stressful physical environments to see how they respond in the moment. Are there non physical methods that you've seen or you've used yourself either in military or sport? Obviously, it's it's a lot easier to get uh, reps in in baseball than it is in the military uh, as far as uh, trying to fabricate that stress level. I know you can have exercise and operations and things of that nature, but uh, it's not the same thing as when it's really on the line when you're in the military. So are there what what techniques or methodologies have you used um, or seen up front where it's purely it's purely mental or emotional and there, there isn't a physical? Or is the physical and the mental too too closely tied? I think they're I think they're definitely closely tied, but I, I think every performance environment can can do, can do this uh, with baseball players. I just I've always had fun working with baseball players because um, you could take you know, most people who know pitchers, you can take your your pitcher who can command pitches the best, and even then how consistent will he be at throwing a middle, middle fastball um, where he's hitting the exact target that he wants to acquire. And so if a catcher sets up middle, middle and the pitcher throws middle, middle, your best commanded pitch, how, how accurate is he going to be? Like, in other words, uh, how consistent will he be with that pitch? What do you think? Seven out of 10 times, eight out of 10 times, nine out of 10 times. What we know is, is that it's probably less than seven out of 10 times, even when you've got really good command. And so when we're able to kind of put guys in environments with similar to that and understanding that helping them, I don't want to say get good at failing, but understanding that there's a big gap between throwing a, a side or a bullpen in a game sometimes. And so we want to replicate what that feels like. And what that might be is it might be increasing their heart rate. That might be, uh, putting them in situations where they're going to fail over and over and over again, where you start ex exacerbating some of their competitive thoughts. Uh, maybe that is um, putting them in impossible situations, such as putting a hitter on both sides of the plate 
um, and then letting them experience what what failure looks like. Because oftentimes, just like the med school example, baseball players don't experience real failure sometimes until they get to the major leagues. And that's problematic because we have to train for some of those contingencies. And if we don't train for those contingencies early on, then we might get this false sense of confidence as we as we develop as human beings. Um, and, yeah, you know, it's fascinating. It to... Go ahead, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say I equate it to kind of like taking the licensure exam, uh, you know, and, and for psychology or your, or your, or your boards and med school, like you get a lot of reps at those questions prior to doing that. That was one of the more stressful experiences in my life was taking, uh, as far as professionally taking a licensure examination. If I hadn't taken several practice tests with similar types of questions and the, uh, ahead of time, I probably would have uh, failed worse than I already did. And so it's understanding that, like, how my mind and body was going to respond when I didn't know answers to questions. And there's no one there to help you. There's no coach standing there right there. Hey, you might want to think about this question. You might want to think about it this way. You're, you're on an island alone. And, again, I think any high-performing space has those similarities and understanding that it's it's really you out there competing with yourself at times against your opponent. And, and how often do practice plans kind of emulate that. I'm not saying every day it needs to happen, but, you know, we have to ask ourselves as coaches and leaders, how often do we emulate that? It doesn't matter what environment you're in, but how often do we emulate what the demands of the job really require? Yeah, no, the, the, the entrance exams or the, excuse me, the, the, the board exams is a good example of, of, cause I was going to ask what, what other industries, uh, you know, behave that way where it's a, it, it would be akin to, you know, a surgeon, just sort of operating on a, on a mannequin his entire, you know, sort of academic career. And then he just takes over his own practice and starts operating on people. Right. Um, the idea yeah. of, of practicing a skill, practicing, um, you know, the repetition of that skill or even have, pa uh, or, or the, the combination and packaging of a variety of skills, uh, under sort of perfect or, neutral circumstances is obviously valuable, but the practicing under pressure is, is hard to, hard to replicate, right? I mean, I mean there's, there's a lot of it's fabricated. A lot of it, you know, we kind of are smart enough to outthink ourselves and say, okay, yeah, I know this is supposed to be, you know, bottom of the ninth man on second, but you know, it's really just spring training practice and I'm wearing shorts. So this is, doesn't really matter, you know, but when there's 40,000 people and you're on national TV and everything is in the line, um, then it's too late to find out, right? Like finding out about that failure uh, at an opportunity, whether it's when you're a professional athlete or in the military or, you know, in the business world or a student, finding that out when the stakes aren't so high, um, you know, seems to be critical to sort of long-term success. I mean, I had a good, I had a friend who, who played in the big leagues and, and had a quote that always stuck with me. And, he, and I think he heard it secondhand. He said, um, you're not a big leaguer until you fail in the big leagues and come back from that. And and that always resonated with me because failing at that level under that microscope, knowing that you're one of hundreds of 750 guys and there's a whole long line of people waiting to take that job right back from you. If you can't handle it, how do you respond to that adversity? Uh, that's really the test of, of, of a major leaguer. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Like that's so true to even just life in general. You know, if you think back, back, I don't know if you played basketball growing up, but I used to have this eighth grade basketball coach. I was not a very good basketball player. I'll be the first to admit that. But 
one of the things that I think we did, and, and I know what we did in eighth grade, was you line everybody up at the end of practice on the free throw line, and uh, you, you have to make these two free throws, otherwise people got to run sprints. But what we don't do is we don't do that with all facets of our game. We only, you know, if we only do that with free throws, then how are we going to improve other aspects of the game? And I, and I see that a lot in other sports. You know, the Department of Defense tends to have a hefty budget for these types of things. You know, people always want to do all these cool things that they see on TV or they read about with the special operations community, but that's high risk training. And there's, it is no joke. There's a reason why there are training deaths and why there are safety observers in place. And, and then you have the opposite. Sometimes coaches want to take it too far to the other direction and they just want to do things because they think it, they saw it on TV and it looks cool. And it's like, no, that's really dangerous. And you have to really be, be careful what you're doing there. Uh, because you don't want to harm people. Uh, these are athletes. They're, you know, they're, and so there's a people who mis, misunderstand the curriculum that's in place for a lot of stress inoculation work that is going on. And they understand that the Department of Defense devotes a lot of money to these types of things to enhance the training opportunities for students or for operators or for, for Marine sailors all across the world. And so, uh, but if we would spend more time, I think, with, with human beings on, on pressing the threshold at a, a healthy dose and practice, we'd probably get a little more resiliency uh, and understanding that we, we can teach guys to, to bounce back from that failure as you're talking about. But I think that is a learned skill. Uh, some guys are just better at it than others, but I'd also think that you can, you can learn a few things there, uh, which is always, why I always found that like jujitsu and judo and martial arts are always interesting because experiencing what it feels like to, lose your oxygen uh, in a chokehold or to be in an uncomfortable position, you learn how your mind and your body operate under, under pressure. And that is emulated, whether that's a bad conversation with your spouse or your partner, or uh, if you're in a frustrating moment with uh, a parenting uh, scenario, but your mind and body have similar types of responses as they would when you're under physical pressure. And, the severity of it dictates the intensity of, of those thoughts, but that's why we like to go oftentimes go after kind of the nucleus and say, okay, what, what is a really stressful component of your game here? And then it hopefully has a trickle down effect in other aspects of your life. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you like, so that's, you know, I've got, I've got three kids and um, like everybody, you have your moments, right. And, and I, I tend to catch myself almost immediately uh, when I do, you know, snap or when I do behave in a way that I, I don't want to behave, you know, I don't, I don't want to speak to them that way or, or, or things of that nature. And, and I find myself immediately after regretting having done that. And it's, and it's always due to stress. Um, often it's due to being overloaded at that particular time, having too much on my plate and, and just having one more sort of straw on the camel's back. And that's, that's what breaks it. But, um, these daily, um, you know, practices, I suppose, right. Are they're so personalized and they're so individual. I'm curious, um, you know, how, I guess from the, starting from the military perspective, how much of that is individual and, and do you have to sort of throttle back accordingly based on the individual who's performing whatever task is, is being asked of him versus this is the standard for the Navy and for this branch of special forces or what have you. And if you can't do this, obviously there are requirements, but 
you know, I guess my question is how, how individualized um, is the stress inoculation in particular? Um, because I imagine, you know, obviously different people respond to stress in different ways. Well, I think in, in sport, you have to think about in professional sports, and I would even advocate in collegiate sports and maybe high school sports, if we're not individualizing practice plans for baseball, for example, like then we're probably probably could do a little bit better job. Uh, you know, you you have 26 guys on a major league roster. You have how many coaches? High school is a little more challenging just because you oftentimes have a, a larger roster. But I think you think about setting a floor and a ceiling, and uh, maybe not so much a ceiling, but a floor for each each individual athlete, and then working from there. And then again, thinking about what are the requirements of a job. Um, you know, Bill Belichick is obviously quoted as saying, just do your job. Well, what is that job? And can you do that job in front of 100 people, 20,000 people? Can you do that job fundamentally sound underneath, um, you know, underneath no constraints, some constraints, and 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 multiple constraints, which is why I really think you know this about me. I, I love the dog training world because dog training, uh, they, they do it the best, I think, at times because we can be much more objective with this four-legged furry creature and teaching them obedience. Uh, but if you can ask your, your pup to sit um, in your house uh, and you think he knows how to sit and you just need to say it once uh, and he goes into that sit mode, can he hold that position next to a highway? Can he hold that position next to a stadium? Can he, and how do you do that? How do you, how do you get him to do those things? Well, we, we talk about exposure and it's exposing them and training them. We wouldn't just throw them next to a stadium or next to a highway and say, Hey, spot sit next to this uh, interstate here. And I expect you not to move. He would, he would freak out. And so what you do is, is you work him up that ladder through lots of reinforcement and patterns and, you're shaping them and you're earning that trust. I think human beings are no different. Oftentimes we complicate it because emotions, because human beings, as you mentioned earlier about parenting, like sometimes I feel like the three stooges with my son where I'm just like slapping myself in the face. But at the same time, I understand like we come out of the womb irrational. And so animals accelerate that a little bit. So dogs are a lot more fascinating to talk about because human beings can be a little more objective with training dogs. And so but at the end of the day, like when you're developing human beings or dogs, like you're exposing them, inoculating them to things that you want them to do. Yeah. So the, the stress inoculation, so that's, that's how you and I met, right? That, that was, I, I was working in a front office and um, always looking for the, the next competitive advantage, right? The next edge. Um, there's, you know, there's plenty of attention paid to analytics. Um, I felt like for me that the, the two frontiers that were, maybe underutilized uh, at the time I was trying to get more involved in them were, were human performance just in general, right? If you keep people on the field longer uh, and, and more consistently, that's a competitive advantage. So, so where can you invest? Who can you go higher? What can you do um, to be better than the competition there? And then one of my favorite times of the year was always draft time. You'd, you'd lock yourself in, in the draft room for two weeks and you'd have conversations and you're talking to experts um, of, of every every aspect of the game, from the most um, detailed nuance to um, you know the hundred million dollar contract. But one thing that we never did really understand was the makeup component. All right, what makes someone tick? 
what motivates somebody. Um, you know, the example I always use is, you know, you and I go watch a baseball game and, um, you know, we're looking at the pitcher and the shortstop boots a ball behind him. He goes, he goes in between innings and grabs him by the collar and starts swearing at him and cursing at him. And, um, you know, we, we walk away from that game and I say, man, that guy was a competitor. He was tough. He wanted to win. He wouldn't let, you know, his teammate let him down. And then you walk away from that same game saying that guy was a jerk. I don't want him on my team. You know, and we would see countless examples of this where people are seeing the same thing and experiencing different things based on their own biases. And so um, that ability to abs- add some objective information, add some some data, add some science to this, um, you know, very inexact art of tell me, what you know, how's this kid wired? Uh, that was a huge opportunity set uh, and, and still is. And it's not just sports, right? That's anywhere. You're building a team in a business you don't know the real person until you work with them every day, right? You don't know who that guy is until you're in the foxhole. You don't know how they're going to respond to stress until you're both experiencing it together. And so, I mean, it's, this is everywhere in the baseball world now, right? But you see this, the showcase circuit, the, you know, these pull down running crow hop, throw 103 into a net. Um, you know, there's all sorts of sort of showcasey developmental things going on in the game that may have a physical benefit, but you're not playing the game that way, right? And so then how do you translate that ability or that skill that you may have honed into actual actionable items, right? How do you actually make, make it play, so to speak? And so that, that is, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not as keyed into the college atmosphere at, at this point anymore, but assessing college athletes, right? It's, it's the same thing. You're gonna get this kid in the college campus is 18 years old. Um, how's he going to respond to being away from mom and dad for the first time? How's he going to respond to your example earlier of being all state and valedictorian? He gets around, he looks in and he's just another guy in the locker, room, you know? And so, um, that for me is, I mean, it's a bias of mine. I admit that, but it's sort of the secret sauce when you, you know, you hire for character and you train for skill when, when you can, right? There are, I'm, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna have a, a high character doctor who can't use a scalpel operate on me. Um, but as far as the teammates that I want around me, I want, I want character first and I want everything else second. And so, um, how do you go about assessing for that? I mean, the military obviously has a, a longstanding history of, you know, turning boys into men, you know, quote unquote, and, and taking some people that maybe need some of that direction and need some of that guidance and structure and making them, extremely productive members of society, if not well above that. So uh, I think we're all trying to do that in the sporting world, um, but we're limited by our own experiences, which is why I always enjoy talking to, to folks like yourself who have expertise in areas that I don't, and that that also have that shared value of, of where the true elite teams come from, how you build them, right? And, and that's, that is blending all of those things together. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation because there's there's so many variables that go into that. And I always I always find it interesting when you get in these types of conversations because you're right, like what you view as quote-unquote good makeup and what I view as quote-unquote good makeup might be completely different. And that's okay, but like if we're operating as a team together, like what do we – can we agree on what the job requires? Is that a starting starting point for us to collectively work on – what we're looking for in, in human beings and how we identify what we want 
And then over how time, much of that in your shape. mind is how much of your in that in your mind is the the leader or the authority figure telling me what my job is? You know, the Belichick example of do your job. Okay, what's my job? And I tell you what your job is, uh, or versus getting buy-in from the individual and having it more conversational. I mean, I, obviously circumstances dictate, but getting yeah. to getting to that definition of what my job is and how can I be successful at what I'm doing, you know, it, it's tough to be successful if you don't check that first box. Yeah, I mean, the leadership has to be able to kind of like set the stage for that. And understand that if you're on if you're on a football team, let's talk about football for a few minutes. If you're on a football team, and I would hope that the offensive line coach knows what the job requirements are for an offensive line. Um, the head coach and the O line coach should probably kind of agree on what that looks like. That that leader has to be able to extract that information consistently from from those cats and dogs, and you have supporting information as well. Um, I think understanding subject matter experts on on what the job requires, subject matter experts in this case would be people who have studied the job, coached the job, done the job, and then understand kind of how to translate that information. I think that's really important. There are pockets of things that, of there, there's, there's pockets of expertises that can go into that as strength conditioning, nutrition, psych, psychology, uh, you know, understanding kind of like what, what compiles into this human being and what are the pieces of the pie that, that make Billy Ryan who he is and understand kind of like, okay, if Billy Ryan's going to be a left guard, okay, well, he probably needs to get in a left-handed stance. That's probably a, a good start, but how much of speed, strength, character, uh, acumen, um, you know, football knowledge, also just being able to learn a playbook, but also um, – managing adversity, being able to think qu quickly on his feet. You know, I, I don't know. It could be a number of different things we could talk about putting on his clothes on, right? I don't know. There's a number of different things you could talk about, but we, we have to start those conversations and understand kind of like, can we agree on something? And then you get really good at coming up with markers and methodologies to be consistent with grading people out and then understanding that this is a longitudinal play. You know, I, as I, as I talked about earlier with some of the dogs, it's amazing to me and, and, and understanding that even with the best working dogs in the world, there's still like a 65% failure rate. When we know the bloodlines, we know uh, what attributes we want, we know what the job requires and making them an animal, we're a little more objective with that and they still have a high failure rate. And so in the human performance world, the HP space and the, and the acquisition space, we almost try to hold ourselves to a higher standard, even though we're way more complex. Human beings are way more complex. Um, so oftentimes I think about it as, as how do we minimize catastrophic failure? You know, we're, we're kind of buying, you know, you don't want to sound like a jerk too much, but you're kind of, you're buying cars on some level with human beings when we're talking about professional athletes who are, and we need to know what the car, what kind of engine it has, how, how good it looks, uh, how fast it can go, and we need to understand everything we can about the car, but also understand that sometimes we're going to get that wrong, and that's okay. Um, we just hope that it's not catastrophic, um, and we hope that that we we understand what we're getting when we're buying that that car. Yeah, I, I imagine it parallels sort of the um, you know the attrition rate through the military or or um, you know, Navy, Navy Special Warfare 
um, to, to professional sports where you can look at someone on paper and they, they take all the boxes, right? It's, it's the perfect person. They've got the skill set, They've got the, the pedigree. Um, they have the physical attributes, they're ready to roll. And then you don't know who you're really dealing with until you're living with them every day. And, um, I wrote a little piece recently um, on Paul Goldschmidt, who won the National League MVP this year, uh, was thrilled for him because he's about as good a person as you'll come across in, in Major League Baseball. And I was fortunate enough to, to cross paths with Paul in Arizona. We signed him to his first long-term extension after a year in the big leagues. Made us look very, very smart after that, way smarter than we were by going out and finishing second in the MVP um, that year. And... Paul is a perfect example of um, certainly had physical ability, big, strong guy, but from a profiling standpoint, again, getting to stack in the deck and, and mitigating the, the catastrophic failures, right? It was a, at the time, some considered a lumbering right-handed hitting first baseman. Those guys have to rake, right? There's no room fair. If they don't hit and hit for power, um, there's almost no value, at least as a starting first baseman. So he had a steep mountain to climb and we, we bet on the individual, right? Like we just knew the kind of person we were dealing with and didn't necessarily know what he was going to do physically to your point, because I mean, living, living beings are hard enough to, uh, dogs are hard enough to predict what they're going to do sometimes, let alone sort of complex emotions of a human being and how they're going to respond to adversity and how they're going to develop. And, but we knew that whatever that ceiling was, as a player, he was going to reach. He wasn't going to get shortchanged in that in that front. He was going to put in the work. He was going to stay grounded. And he went on. And he did incredible things. And um, it's been a ton of fun to see that. But we didn't know that until we were living with him every day. Until we saw it. You know, you can't go in there. You know, you go there and you go into a visiting ballpark as a scout and you watch for five games. Okay, the guy's out there for early ground balls. He's talking to his teammates. He's hustling down the line. You know, he's doing all this the stuff that you're supposed to do that says you're playing the game the right way. But what's he doing in the locker room? How's he talk? How's he treating his teammates? How's he treating the support staff? You know what? What do his teammates think of him? All these things that you, there's no way you could possibly know it. You can get little pieces of information here or there, but it's it's an educated guess. Um, and obviously, the stakes in the military are way higher, but if you find that answer out too late, then yeah, there can be catastrophic consequences. So figuring yeah, out it's, who it's, you're in bed with on day one is like, it's so critical. It's very a hundred percent. And it's, we, we talk about this all the time, just, and I, you and I have talked about it as well before, which is what's the difference between conscientiousness and obsessiveness. And, and it's understanding that obsessiveness may may turn into catastrophic failure at times because some guys will show up an hour before practice time but why are they doing that like what's the purpose of that and is that because they truly want to be great or is it because they're obsessive with their trade craft and um and there's an element you know if you've got good enough skill sometimes that counterbalances it but at the same time you know uh watching a human being once or twice, you're not going to be able to understand that. But how do you get really good at, at measuring one to four things and feeling pretty confident that those four things are really important for elite uh, athletes or greatness? 
And I think that's always a starting point. And, and that consensus is key because, again, you and I show up to the same park. We see guys show up an hour early. You, I might say, yeah, that guy is like truly dedicated to his, his craft. And you might say, well, he's really obsessive. And he's only doing it because he can't get his routine, uh, his pregame routine done or his, um, his, his warm-ups done because if, it, if he doesn't get it done in time, then it's going to be a bad day for that human being. Uh, or he hates his so wife and that, just wants yeah, to get out of the house, right? Like yeah, you don't know what's exactly. going on behind the scenes. Correct. Yeah. So we talk about purposeful driven behavior, but can, can you and I at least agree on what we're looking for there? And can we just be good at that one thing? And saying that we know why this person's doing this one thing, and this one thing is really important for uh, the job that's required. And I think the military back in World War II—that's that, where this kind of started. Just when um, you know they've morphed a lot over time, but the, de- the Department of Defense is when they were creating. Okay, we put guys in buckets and say, okay, this guy is probably not nuclear engineer material. We need these folks to be nuclear engineers, and we need these folks to be infantry guys. That doesn't mean that the nuclear engineer is a better uh, operator than the infantry guy. It just means that human beings are different and we have roles. And what you will find is that the people are actually happier when they're placed in the appropriate roles as well, because now you're not setting up human beings for failure versus just shoving them all towards the nuclear engineer route. And then they're failing immensely or, or the other way was shoving them down the infantry road and then understanding that they're not cut out for that. And so over time, they've gotten better and better and better at, at doing that um, and, and collecting data and looking at what the job requires. And I think in professional sport, because the stakes, not that the stakes are not high in the U.S. military, I'm, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is that oftentimes organizations aren't um, either they're not consistent enough to, to last the long haul or the 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 failure rate is so long that, you know, we get a lot of personnel changes and it's hard because you have to move pretty quickly and you have to have things, you have to have programming set up in place to be able to evaluate quickly and efficiently and um, efficaciously. Yeah. And, and so much of that, in my opinion, gets morphed into uh, a changing narrative to fit sort of that survival instinct your point right if, if you're in the front office hey we can't get this one wrong so all of a sudden that first round pick gets hyped gets hyped gets hyped and you know there was a player i came across in my career who was a very very high draft pick had the you know the whole world's expectations on his shoulders and after a certain amount of time the the, the narrative you know internally was like this guy can't do it this guy's not he's not that guy Okay. He's not Dave Winfield. Okay. Like he can still just be a really, really good player. Isn't that all right? Like he doesn't have to be a hall of famer for this to be a successful draft pick or for him to have a good career. Maybe we were wrong. One of the, one of the, uh, my favorite um, titles of a book is Chuck Klosterman. And and I may butcher the actual title, but it's essentially, what if we're wrong? I believe is the title of, of the Chuck Klosterman book. And I was just drawn to the title. And he goes, you know, in, in his sort of entertaining way, he goes through and talks about everything from like, he starts with gravity, right? And like, well, it's the law of gravity. That's obviously never going to change. Well, there was a point in time where gravity, as we know, it didn't exist. So it did change, right? And, and we are 
we're so secure in our understandings and, and feel like we're so evolved and, and have all this information and power at our fingertips that, you know, we know these things to be self-evident. So we don't have to worry about that. But what if we're wrong, right? So there's, right. again, it's like there's a standard of, I got to go play D1 or I've got to be a starting pitcher. I don't want to be a reliever or, you know, I want to be a Navy SEAL. I don't want to just be an enlisted guy. Like all, you know, all this like expectations, like, well, what, why do you want to do that? That's what always comes back to for me. It's like, okay, why? That's great. Why? Why do you want to play D1? Well, I just want to play at the highest level. Okay. Like, do you want to, what if you're not good enough to play division one? Do you want to go and walk on and maybe ride the bench for four years and catch bullpens and just to be, and that's okay. Like you just want to be around that environment. Great. Or do you want to go play every day? Do you want to go to a junior college? Do you want to go to division two, II, division three? Because what, at the end of the day, you know, tie it back to baseball, right? Like, Hey, you're not making the big leagues. You can say that to an overwhelming number of people and you're going to be right. Like the, the, the percentage is so small that don't sit here and dilute ourselves into thinking, well, I'm going to do this because I'm going to be in the big leagues. And uh, that balance of like, again, ambitious, high performing, um, you know, I, I kind of like say, you don't want to, you don't want to acknowledge, you don't want to have a backup plan because that in and of itself is acknowledging failure. Um, I think that's short-sighted, but how do you balance that with the, the self-awareness, which I think we, we both agree is like sorely lacking today, just generally speaking of, Hey, I know like, this is my lane. This I'm really good at this. I can be very successful at this over here. That's probably not me, even though that's like the cool thing or the sexy thing or what I'm supposed to, I, I'm quote unquote supposed to do. That's not, that's not me. Yeah. The sexiness kind of like pings in on that competitive spirit aspect for me. And I always find it interesting when, when human beings talk about being competitive and then they're only competitive in one aspect of their life. And that, that never really resonates with me. Competitiveness is a continuum, right? Like it, you could probably grade people out on competitiveness, but it, it's always fascinating to me when it's like, yeah, I'm a competitive human being. Then why do you have a 2.0 in GPA at the school you're at? Like, well, I've devoted all my time to my sport. Okay, well, there are plenty of other athletes who are really competitive but still like perform really well in the classroom. And don't you think being good at one will make you better at the other and vice versa? Now, that's just my opinion, but it's always interesting to me when we ping in on competitiveness and how how we we kind of get a little short-sighted there. The same way with the love of the game that you're talking about or the love of everything that you're, you're doing. And I, I will tell you that my time on active duty was some of the most important aspects of my life, but I, was, I also was like obsessed as a kid with, with the military every generation of my family had served our country and wearing that uniform i could have been cleaning out crappers every day and probably still would have found value in doing that because um i loved wearing the uniform i love yeah, being around yeah it wasn't just a piece of cloth to me it wasn't it was something that i had a call to do it was something that i yearned to do uh, and i i loved every aspect of it and, uh, and I think that 
baseball, football, uh, basketball, whatever your, your, your trade is, med school, like there is an element of a floor of love that you have to love doing what you do, I think, in order to, to maintain that. Because as you know, better than anybody else, the amount of failure that you're going to experience in baseball is unparamount. unparamount. You, and it's hard, obviously I wasn't a professional baseball player, so I, I don't like no experience that myself although i've lived it with baseball players and understand kind of like from their worldview it's it's kind of like cancer doc yeah uh a cancer doc doesn't have cancer to treat cancer but at least he's worked a lot with cancer patients like yeah i didn't play professional baseball but i've been around a lot of baseball players and worked with a lot of baseball players at the highest level and it's understanding that to push these guys through some slow spells or um periods of failure, like that love of the game, the love of the preparation has to exist. There has to be a, a floor for that. Um, and it's defining that for yourself and understanding, will this floor get me through all the dark times? So my love of call of serving our, our U.S. government, will that get me through an 11-month deployment? Um, do I believe in the love for my brothers and sisters that I served with do I believe in that enough to press me through being away from my family? In the sports world, whatever it is of why I'm doing what I'm doing, do I believe in the mission, if you will, enough to press through an 0 for 15 hitting streak or hitless streak or rocking a 7-2 ERA and an A ball? Uh, will that push me through it? And, and I think that this is what the Instagram Twitterverse doesn't teach folks um, anymore is because there's not enough likes that you can get. There's not enough dopamine that can be released to press through those periods of adversity because that's all internal. That's all based on your your value and how you view yourself in this small world. Um, that's pretty philosophical in nature there. I understand that, but, uh, but I, I do believe that that's really important for human beings to press through. Um, and you hear you hear active duty guys talk about it all the time people that actually were doing the work, not me being a psychologist working with folks, um, is is what kept me going was the guy to the left of me and the guy to the right of me. Um, anything that was thrown my way, I could get through because I knew that we were going to do it for each other. Sport, you know who who is the best version of that? You know, is it your teammates? Is it your family that you're going to be feeding? Is it that you just love? performing and practicing your tradecraft so much that that's going to press you through it. I, I don't know what that is, but the earlier that we can figure that out, the better off we are going to be at pressing through dark times. Yeah. I, I just finished rereading um, the alchemist and uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever read that, but there's, he talks about everyone's personal legend and, and there's a quote that, that r reminded me of what you were just saying. And it says, everybody wants, um, he was talking about specific people. I said they want to. They want to. They want to have their personal legend, but they don't want to live their personal legend, right? So it's it's they want. We see this in the sports world now. Um, there's so much incentive financially, right? You're going to go make millions of dollars if you are good enough to go to that level. Um, that you don't necessarily have to love the game. You don't necessarily have to have it be your whole world to do that because you'll, you'll, you'll make enough money where you can go do what you really want to do in time where well, we didn't have that. Um, 
you know, not that long ago, right? I, I think when I, when I started with the Diamondbacks, our coaching staff was like, um, you know, the, the roster was like an all-stars from the 80s and 90s. It was Kirk Gibson, Alan Trammell, Charlie Nagy, uh, Matt Williams, uh, Don Baylor. I mean, it was just, it was all these like excellent players. And the whole staff was made up of guys um, that had done it and had done it at, you know, an elite level. Um, I think we're going to see that less and less now because there's so much money in the game that if I just made $50 million playing, why, you know, I'm going to go be gone from my family for nine months out of the year and live on the road and, you know, do this and do that and do all these sacrifices. Is it because, do I love the game that much to do it? Or is it, yeah, I love it if, if I'm cashing big checks, but short of that, like I like the game. Right. And that's, um, it's an extreme example because people don't, most professions don't have that giant pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But again, there's 750 guys in the whole universe that are at that level. So they're, they are the best of the best, but your point about having that baseline of, of joy or of love or of passion for whatever you're doing, um, that that's sort of the table stakes for being successful. Right? And it doesn't, in my opinion, at least it doesn't always have to look the same or feel the same for, for everyone. You and I may have shared values and, and attack the same challenge uh, with the same figure. And we might be doing it for slightly different reasons. I might be doing it as a stepping stone to go do something else. You may be doing it to make some money to, to buy your wife a nice present, you know, like clumsy analogy, but um, it can sort of mean different things to different people. And I think getting your point, getting back to your point earlier, like good leaders can tap into that, can identify that, and then can sort of press the right lever at the right time to say, okay, like now it's your time to go. I know what you need. I know what you want. Here's, you know, here's the ball, go get it. Yeah, it's almost like a, sometimes we try to push people to believe my value system to perform on a high level. And if they don't have my value system, then they're not a good player or they bad, they have bad character or bad makeup. And, and really, that's not the case at all. And, and I think it's pretty, pretty interesting when we try going down those rabbit holes and it's understanding that your value system is completely different from mine and both can help us perform at a high level. But what we do know is, is that if we're just doing this because we're good at it, that shelf life is probably going to be dependent on your talent ceiling, right? And it's understanding that, like, if you throw 100 miles an hour in your mid-30s probably isn't going to be the case. Or you're, it's, We know velocity is going to come down unless you are truly uh, an outlier. And if you're truly an outlier, great. I hope that you make millions and millions and millions of dollars, but it's understanding it like what's going to keep that motor going when that performance starts to, when the game starts to catch up with, with your talent, because it will happen for most people. It just depends on when and how, and sometimes it's accelerated. Sometimes it's not, obviously it's person dependent, but it's understanding kind of what's going to keep that motor motor going. Yeah. And I think a lot of us wait to do, you know, it's the difference between, preventative action versus restorative action, right? So doing something, I did throw a hundred. Now I throw 98 and I need to, a 98 is still really good, but it's, it's continuing to back up. So now I've got to read and react and figure out how to get hitters out, right? I used to 
I used to be able to work all day, every day when I was young and single and had no obligations or commitments. Now I've got a family. I have to dial down the work hours to, you know, fulfill my obligations at home and, and to have a relationship with my family. So how do I compensate? What do I do? How do I, where do I, you know, sort of step on the gas to make up for that difference? Right. And I imagine that that is, um, you know, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the concept of preventative versus restorative. You know, I, I learned a long time ago, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And, and, I, and I think that's really relevant for these, you know, for this topic. It's understanding that if we can prevent, the better off we're going to be. You see this all the time in healthcare. It's one of my biggest frustrations with the healthcare world is, is that, like, we, we understand that COPD and obesity and cardiac disease are some of the top killers in the United States. But yet insurance doesn't cover uh, nutrition consulting or psychological behavior modification uh, work oftentimes for people without a diagnosis. And it's understanding that why we want prevention, but are we willing to put some money on that? Because ultimately nutritional counseling, exercise, you know, diet, exercise and activity are going to be the solution to prevent some of those things. Now, how do we tailor that into, well, why does that make sense for the sports world? Where it's understanding kind of like, okay, what's the cause of this? What's gonna keep me sustaining elite performance? How am I going to continue to manage elite performance looking down the road, you know, a month, three months, six months, a year, two years, and how am I gonna maintain that? What's going to take me away from me from maintaining performance what's going to keep me maintaining elite performance and can I identify those things and can I mitigate them to continue to thrive and I think that's what's important and and, and because we're so focused on what's in front of us right now we oftentimes lose sight of those things and the next thing you know like you said we have a kid we've got uh, we're married now and my time is divided when I didn't really plan for those things accordingly and as a result, it goes back to kind of the point you made earlier, which is like, why am I doing this? And, and what, what is going to keep my motor going? Yeah. And, and I know you and I are both, we've had lengthy conversations about this in the past, but just passionate about culture and, and the impact that that can have. And I think that that we fall into that same trap with, with culture, be it in professional sports or in business uh, or or even with our, our own family, quite honestly, um, the, the trap of trying to take restorative action instead of preventative. You know, I, when I started in baseball, I was an area scout and I worked for the Indians and my life day to day was going to be the same, whether I worked for the Indians or the Yankees or the Braves or the Red Sox or the Rangers, it was just a matter of, you know, what golf shirt I was going to put on when I went to the ballpark, but I was going to see the same players. I was going to have the same territory. And what separates that and makes it one place desirable to work versus another uh, beyond compensation is, is the culture. It's the people you're working with. It's the leadership that you have. Um, it's the, the value that you feel like you add and, and the, the view that you feel like the organization has of you. And I feel like we, um, Oftentimes we wait until it's too late. We wait until, you know, in the, in the baseball world, someone came and asked for permission to, to hire somebody 
well, now we better, we better give him some love and give him a raise and let him know that we value him. You know, well, why didn't you do that ahead of time? You know, why didn't you, why do you have to wait until you see some cracks in the armor before you proactive? I'm, I mean, I'm a, I'm a believer that culture is no different than your exercise or your diet or learning a new instrument or a language, right? It, it, it's a practice and you've got, it's a living organism that you have to put in the work and the time to, you know, certainly to build, but just to maintain it, just to have that be what it is and it evolves and keeping it within the lateral limits that you've set for it. And so uh, if more often than not, I feel like if you wait for the first sign of trouble to, to fix it, sometimes that's too late. Uh, I think the good organizations are able to, um, to sort of right the ship and just give it a nudge um, to make sure it, it, it keeps going in the same direction. You know, you see it sometimes when a high profile player might retire, that's the end of fill in the blank. Right. And then they just keep chugging along because they saw that coming. They planned for it. The coach knew it. He empowered some other players, what have you. Right. It's just, I mean, anytime any big leader in business is going to retire, it's the same thing. What's the organization going to do? If you wait, until it's too late and then try to react, you have a pretty good chance of failure, I would say. But if, you, if you're if you proactive about it and, and have the mindfulness of saying, this is what we stand for, this is what it means to be fill in the blank, then everything else, every other decision you make should become easier. Don't you think you're talking about a little bit of like the, what the quality of the relationship is with the people that you're working with? And so, you know, we talk about building rapport and building relationships all the time, but you actually have to want to do that you actually have to have to be authentic with that because if you're not authentic people will smell that out and sniff that out like a hound dog on a trail right and it's like <laughs> we, we 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 the quality of that rapport i think is really important and some people will say well i don't have time for that well if you don't have time for that then you don't have time to really press through people or help people get, get through frustrating times and when that matters and so like it, that literature has been clear time and time again that uh, money only gets you so far, but the quality of the relationships with the people you work with is really important. But I, we could, people read a thousand self-help books on this topic all the time, but yet we stink at it. And I, and I think it's because oftentimes people just aren't genuinely interested in other human beings. And, and, and I think the, the, the more that we can get good at doing that and asking yourself, what's the quality of my relationship with the people that I work with? Yeah. And, it's the, well, yeah how do people you do don't that? care what you know. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? And and but but what does that look like? Is that reading a self help book on building rapport and, and building relationships? Is that the way to do that, or is it just like taking that time that you would spend reading that book and learning about the people you're working with and, and learning about what drives them, what motivates them, what kind of feedback they want? If I could count, I'd be. You know, what's funny is is that some of the best leaders I've worked with have done a really good job of asking me those types of questions. How do they want to see, receive feedback or, uh, or how I want to receive feedback from them? Where do I want to go professionally and, and not being scared that, that I need to grow and develop, um, you know, like a plant myself. Like it's, it's, it's taking the time to do that. I'm not saying that needs to be 40 hours a week. At the same time, though, I, I think quality of those relationships is really, really important. I think it's, it's basic principles. You know, I, 
I know you're probably tired of me talking about it, but, uh, or at least your audience will be as far as the dog training stuff. You know, one of the rules of dog training is, is that like, if you're having a bad day, don't train the dog because the dog can sense your stress down the, down the leash. And so, well, that doesn't mean you don't go into work that day. What that means for human beings is understanding that like, Hey, you better check yourself and understand that like, if you're having a bad day, your message is probably going to be, uh, like viewed in, in a way that you don't want it to be viewed because the people that you are leading can sense that from you. And it's understanding that those are some things that people want because when you're having, when mom and dad are having a bad day, we can sense that. And when we sense that, it means I'm probably going to have a bad day and that's going <laughs> to impact the quality of our relationship. Yeah. And, and like, there's a lot of parallels again, between parenting and dog training that, that really come into leadership. And it's understanding that, that the closer that we can identify those things and the quality of those relationships, the better off we're going to be. Um, you know, I, I would ask people to ask themselves, like, what's the quality of my relationship with the people that I'm leading or that I'm working with? And, and if it's bad, if it's below average, how do I improve that? And it doesn't need to be a, a 10 out of 10, but how do we make it maybe a seven out of 10 versus a, versus a four better yet. Can you ask the people that you're leading how they view the quality of your relationship? And are you, are you aware of what that might bring to the table? Yeah. I think we saw a lot of that during COVID, right? When we took ourselves out of office environments and we were relegated to everyone working remotely or, or a lot of people. And there's the, you know, there, there is something to the beehive, uh, environment of, of feeding off each other and having that sense of community and energy. Uh, and, and there, I think that there's people that because they had big personalities or they were charming or they were funny, uh, or they were just strong personalities, they could just by sort of sheer force of, of, of that personality, get away with, Hey, I'm just going to pop into Ryan's office, put my feet up on his desk and you know, shoot the breeze for 30 minutes. And that's going to be my rapport building. We may get one nugget, two minutes worth of, of actionable, you know, work out of that. And, you know, I'll go about my way and I'll just move, hop on down to the next office, you know, and have a cup of coffee with that person. And, and you didn't have that luxury anymore. It didn't, it couldn't be organic and sort of, um, you know, sort of, uh, just this cult of personality sort of force that, that could suck it all out of, of, of the environment, you had to be really deliberate with how you were going to lead people. And you had to be really deliberate about, um, I'm going to take 45 minutes or an hour of Ryan's time on his calendar and, and make him sit down with me at the computer and have this meeting with him. You know, I better make it worth his while. I'm not just going to sit there and BS with him for a while. So I think a lot of people struggle with that. Um, you know, you hit on a word earlier that's, you know, close to my heart is authentic. You know, I think, the other dynamic here is that not everybody's a leader and, and that's okay. Like, I feel like we put leadership up on this pedestal as if there's a paradigm for leadership and you have to talk a certain way and act a certain way and do certain things, uh, or you're not a leader. And I think there's a, there's a level of humility and, and self-awareness and saying, you know, I, I, I'm a really good operator. I'm a really good strategic figure and planner and I can go execute with the best of them, but not a great, not a great people person, not a great leader. Can't motivate folks. Can't build a team, whatever it might be. It does. You can still sit at, at the top of the pyramid, right? You can still be the boss, but, um, having the awareness that one, I'm not good at that. And two, 
I'm not good at that, but I still acknowledge that that's really important. So I got to go deputize somebody else to handle that for me and really empower them. And, and those people I think can go do special things, but I feel like we have to also be mindful of just the fact that leadership is not just sort of a cookie cutter, you know, to your point about self-help books, you don't just read a book and become a leader. There has to be that authentic, you know, thread throughout. Yeah. Leadership is such an overused and underdelivered term, I think. And, in today's world in the in the zoom world or in the corporate space it's uh we, we overuse that term so much and uh, almost feel like it's been bastardized at times and i was just thinking about there's a really interesting book called it's a short book called the the way of the shepherd by kevin lehman and uh he talks about um, leading kind of like a shepherd does with a flock of sheep and 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 understanding that every day you have to inspect your flock, your flock pretty, um, pretty intently, and, and it's not just a, a one over as you talked about, just coming, but not, not just a flyby. It's it's understanding that like I have to authentically like uh, check the flock every day for health reasons and understand kind of like what's going on with the sheep, um, so that way it doesn't take out the whole flock. And uh, I've always found that. And that book came out, I think it was like 2004, I think, but it, but it came out and uh, it's pretty, I thought it was pretty profound at the time because it's, it's understanding that like we do have to treat each person individually and understanding that all of our imperfections and strengths and areas of improvement are, are unique to me, but our, our, we want our leadership, our people that lead us to understand what those imperfections are and not judgmentally look at us. And as long as there's a core level of competence, we still have to be able to to do our job, our fundamental component of our job, as we talked about earlier. You still have to be able to do that. When it comes to leading me, uh, I may be different than you, and that's okay. I also may have some quirks that may not fit with you, your worldview, and that's okay too. But how do we continue to collaborate together to achieve our common goal and know that you're going to have my back and I'm going to have your back to accomplish the task that we're setting out? And I think that's really important for people to understand that. And it's, it's really hard. It's a hard thing to, to swallow because it takes some self-reflection. And quite honestly, I'm not the best out of the times. And, and I think that we can all get better at it. Uh, but as we evolve and learn, that's an authentic thing is in me understanding that like, I still have room to grow in this. And I hope that people have, that have worked with me know that Nobody's perfect and then we're moving in the right direction regardless. And I still have my own quirks as well. Every leader I've ever served under has had quirks. But uh, again, are we preventing catastrophic failure there? Are we maximizing human potential and knowing that we care about each other because we're here for the same common goal? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's probably a, a different dynamic in the military because you have to you have to follow orders or people die. but. Um, the, the element of, uh, humility, right. And, and acknowledging the fact that I don't have all the answers, right. There, there's, there's a, a conviction that is inherent in decision-making in the military that you can't waver, right. You can't necessarily say, um, you know, oh, what, what do you guys think, right. You've got to be decisive. You got to make the decision and, and go. Um, whereas there is, you know, the rest of us have the luxury of maybe crowdsourcing a little bit or, or saying, Hey, I, I just don't know. Somebody else take the lead on this one. So, um, I, I'm just curious about like the dynamic there of, of the 
you know, call it the, the humble or empathetic leader in a military setting versus the sterner sort of stereotypical my way or the highway type and whether that, you know, bears different results or not, or, or if it's all sort of the same based on just execution. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that's probably a, a really, that's a really complex question. I think that's probably uh, uh, something to think about when it comes to execution. And, and I think defining what execution really is, isn't that kind of what life comes down to at times is being able to execute when it matters. And how do we get to the point of, if we reverse engineer that and start end at execution and work backwards, what's the means and methodology to, to get to execution? And how do my leadership attributes or constructs contribute to executing? And I think that destination, how we get to that destination is, is person dependent. And I've seen leaders go both ends of that spectrum. And some people really like that hammer type of leader. Some people really respond well, but the ones that I think do the best, are the ones that can push and pull on each of the folks that they're leading, being able to adapt to that, you know, just talking about being flexible, cognitively flexible and being able to adapt to whatever environment comes on the fly and, and understanding that like, yeah, when you screw up, you got to own that and have some humility there and adapt and not let it happen again. And I think that the, the curriculum for leadership, although there is a curriculum there, how we institute that curriculum is person dependent because that's what, that's the art of leadership that I think oftentimes goes overlooked. It goes back to that authenticity standpoint. Like I can have a hammer and use it fairly frequently. If I'm authentic and consistent, people can adapt to that. It may not get me longitudinal results that, that are going to win you the Nobel Nobel Peace Prize or anything like that. But at the same time, there are some people that respond really well to that. Uh, but again, it's person dependent. Um, but I would encourage folks to look at the execution piece, reverse engineer that and say, okay, how is my leadership style going to help us to get helping us, helping this team to get to execution and my personality constructs, how is that going to inhibit us from getting to the execution mode successfully and, and um, continuing to look at that, you know, fairly, uh, fairly intently and, and getting feedback there and there's no, in my opinion, what I've seen, and I've seen some really talented folks is, is understanding there's, there's not a one size fits all uh, mentality. That's what makes it really hard to lead human beings. That's why, that's why it's tough. Yeah, there's no doubt. There's no, it's hard to, hard to lead them. It's hard to assess them and it's hard to predict the future. Right. I mean, that's what, um, that's what we're talking about. That's why it's, that's why we are still sitting here talking. We could probably talk for another two hours. So. Uh, we won't do that, but, um, Hey man, it's always good to, always good to chat with you. I appreciate you. Um, look forward yeah. to doing it again soon. Me too. Thank you for having me on and uh, I look forward to chatting with you soon. All right, brother. Thanks for listening to this episode of the no one is watching podcast. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe so you can be notified when a new episode drops. If you're interested in similar content, you can check us out at no one is or find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. See you next time.